Father God, you are our rock, you are our fortress, you are our deliverer, you are the one that we take refuge in, you are our shield, you are the horn of our salvation, you are my stronghold, you are my refuge, you are my savior. Satan is violent, he wants to harm me, you have delivered me from him. And we call upon you, the one who is worthy to be praised, the one who has saved us from death, the one who has protected us from destruction. And we ask that once again you would help us understand your words of life. Thank you for the redemption we have in Jesus. And pray, Father, that we would be better witnesses to the resurrection, understanding it even more as we look in the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One other thought about us being out of debt that I forgot to mention. We're going to celebrate it the Sunday after Easter. Uh, that night, 6.30 p.m., we are going to have a worship service together, and we're going to burn the note, and we're going to eat sheet cake, and it's going to be fantastic, all right? So we'll do that on uh, April the 16th, Lord willing. It's been about uh, six weeks since we were in Luke together. We left off at a pretty distinct stopping point, though, the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus in a rich man's tomb. These are the last words we read before Christmas, uh, the Christmas season began. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, talking about the decision and action to crucify Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So we left off on Good Friday, um, heading into Holy Saturday, right? And now, two weeks after Christmas, it's Easter which I love. I love that we're talking about Easter right after Christmas because the two events are inseparable. Christ was born in Bethlehem so that he could die for our sins in Jerusalem. And he resurrected, declaring eternal victory for everyone who has been redeemed. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The resurrection of Christ is the walking proof that Mary's child completed the task that the Father set before him to save his people from their sins. And so it makes total sense for us to jump from Christmas to Easter, from the manger to the empty tomb. All four of the gospel writers have their say on the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all give an account and we're going to use kind of a harmony of those accounts to piece the story together this morning. But as we look at Luke's passage here, you will see that as he is narrating the events of the resurrection, he is particularly concerned with the resurrection and how it relates to the teachings of Jesus and to the Word of God, to the promises of heaven. So this morning we're going to see how the resurrection proves that God's spoken words are true and God's incarnate word is the truth. And God's word gives eternal hope to our hearts. Let's read the passage here, Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Our passage starts with the women from the end of Luke 23 coming back to the tomb with the spices that they have uh, prepared for Jesus' body. He was placed in the tomb, but then the Sabbath came and they had to wait until Sunday morning to finish the work of getting Jesus' body ready for burial. To prepare a body for burial on the Sabbath is to transgress the, the commandment of the Sabbath, so they couldn't do that. Um, the Jewish people did not have names for the days of the week. Luke says here it's the first day of the week. They just numbered the days uh, as they related to the Sabbath. So it's the first day of the week because it's the first day of the week after the Sabbath. This, by the way, though, is why Sunday matters now. It's why we're here right now. It's, the reason we don't do this on Tuesday morning okay, is because the Lord rose again on Sunday morning, and when he did that, he made every Sunday after that until he comes back holy. Every Sunday is the Lord's day, right? This is by the, I'm, it's the last time I'm going to say something about this. I promise I'm not like walking around stewing about this all the time, okay? But this is why churches should have had church on Christmas. Many said it's too hard to do Christmas Eve and Christmas. Well, then the biblical thing to do would have been to not have the Christmas Eve service, if we're going to talk about what the biblical thing to do was, we don't know when Jesus was born. We're happy to celebrate it on December 25th each year, but biblically that date had no significance until 336 when Constantine decided that would be the case. We think he was probably born more around, you know, April. Nobody picked Sunday for the Lord's Day except God himself when he raised his son from the dead. It was set apart when his son walked out of the grave. We can't ever forsake the Lord's Day, Right? As the church, we can't forsake the Lord's day. We're not consumers, we're Christ followers. And we gather on the Lord's day because he is risen. By the way, not saying a church shouldn't have a Christmas Eve service. I'm saying don't pit Christmas Eve against the Lord's day. Just do them both. Luke also tells us they come at early dawn. Matthew describes it as toward the dawn of the first day of the week in Matthew 28.1. Mark says, come very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen. In John 20 verse 1, uh, John says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Some people accuse the Bible of having major discrepancies surrounding the events of the resurrection because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that Mary Magdalene arrives with other women, but John describes her showing up at the tomb alone. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, you don't need to panic about that. It's only a problem if you're looking for a problem. 
people do look for problems. They would love for there to be a problem. They would love for there to be a major fly in the ointment of the resurrection accounts because if you can find a mistake in the relaying of the resurrection accounts, if you can undermine the accounts of the resurrection, you can undermine the whole Christian faith. Because if we're wrong about this and he is not risen, then the Bible says we should be pitied above all people. Because we are here worshiping a Lord who is dead. Of course, we don't believe that we are. But skeptics would love to undermine our faith on a simple detail being misplaced by one of the gospel writers. Nothing's been misplaced here. Just got to breathe, use the common sense God gave us to harmonize the four gospel accounts together and put together a reasonable order of events. So I want to do that before we go any further. Let me summarize the events of that first Easter morning from the perspective of all four gospels so you can see there's no cause for concern in piecing the story together. Mary Magdalene and the other women travel from Bethany about two miles away to come back to Jesus' tomb. Nearing the tomb, they would have seen that the stone has been rolled away. I don't think they even had a plan for how they were going to necessarily get to Jesus' body. They were coming back to do the right thing. How are they going to get in there? There's a stone that has sealed this thing. I'm not sure that they had a plan there, but they get there and see, well, the stone's rolled away. Matthew's account almost makes it seem like the women were there for this event, but that makes no sense considering how they react to the situation. Here's how Matthew writes about it. He says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I don't think they saw that happen. I think Matthew is just reminding us of who was going to the tomb. And then he's like, hey, they got there. Stone was rolled away. This is what happened. This is why it was rolled away. John 20, verses 1 and 2, tells us that at this point, Mary Magdalene would have left to go and tell Peter and John. The other women would have headed back to Bethany to tell the followers of Christ there. Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb with Peter and John. Peter and John go back to where they are staying after seeing the tomb. Mary Magdalene gets back to the tomb later, or she stays around after Peter and John leave. She speaks to the resurrected Jesus. Jesus also speaks with the women on their way back to Bethany, according to the disciples who talked with him on the road to Emmaus. We'll see them next week. At some point, he also has an interaction with Peter. That's the basic outline. We could spend more time breaking it down beat by beat. We, we don't have the time for that this morning. But even in the summary, I hope your mind is put at ease that there's nothing that is not reconcilable here. You just got to put the stories together. The women are perplexed when they see that Jesus' body is not there. Because they would have thought that grave robbers took it. That was a big issue in Judea to the point that the Romans had to put strict laws in place to stop it. It was an epidemic. Uh, Bodies were being stole all over the place. You can even see in Mary's words to the angels when she gets back to the tomb in John 20. She says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So she is still thinking somebody has taken Jesus' body. But these two men in dazzling clothes are standing by them in verse 4, which causes them to bow their faces to the ground... There is no reason to think that these are not angels. Luke does not identify them as angels outright, but angels are all over Matthew and John's accounts. And the angels ask a simple but very profound question, which is, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He made these claims about himself. He told these disciples these things. He told his followers these things. So why are they looking for him in a grave? That's the question of the angels. And then they recalled to the women what Jesus had told them. That he would suffer and he would be crucified and he would resurrect. And in our study of Luke over the last couple of years, we have seen this. In Luke 9, verses 21 and 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Later on in Luke 9, he says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. In Luke 18, He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. All of this happened. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And the women remember his words in verse 8, which prompts them to return to tell the other disciples and the other followers of Christ. So I want to stop here to make our first point this morning. The resurrection proves that God's spoken words are true. The resurrection proves that God's spoken words are true. I think it's easy to miss this. There's so much happening here and it's all so crucial to our faith that we can breeze past the fact that when these women are perplexed, what do these angels do? They point them to the word of God. They point them to Jesus' words. They point them to what the Lord has said. Don't be perplexed. God in the flesh told you that this was going to happen, and it's all happening just as he said. We'll see the same thing in the next scene on the Emmaus Road when the disciples are talking with Jesus. They don't realize it's Jesus. They are kept from realizing it's Jesus, and they're telling him about how all of these terrible things happened to Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus comes up to them. They don't know it's him, and he's like, what are y'all talking about? And one of them is like incredulous. He's like, what do you mean what are we talking about? How do you not know what we're talking about? All of Jerusalem knows what we're talking about. Everybody's talking about what happened to this guy, Jesus. And then Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he teaches them. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When they were walking along the road, they were devastated. They were like, he got crucified. He can't be the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He points them back to the words. He points them back to what Jesus predicted about himself and what is predicted in the scriptures. The word of God is confidently proclaimed, in one sense by angels who say, remember how he told you. And then again, we'll see next week in Luke 24, 27 by Jesus. And in in both cases, the word that is proclaimed has already been proven true because Christ is resurrected. His resurrection serves as an exclamation point of confirmation That the promises of God are real and verifiable and authentic. That they're true. This is why Luke says that Jesus interpreted the law and the prophets to the Emmaus Road disciples. 
The resurrected Christ was showing them that his very living presence before them as the slain but victorious Messiah was proof that every word of God is true and trustworthy. There's a lot of eternal benefits you receive as a Christian for your Savior walking out of the grave and defeating death. But the reality that we can know that God's word is worthy to bear the full weight of the trust of our souls, man, that's one of the greatest. The empty grave means that, that every shred of my soul can put its hope in God with absolute confidence that my hope is not in vain. We just sang it, right? To remember the empty tomb. John Calvin put it this way, he said, although we have complete salvation through his death because we are reconciled to God by it, it is by his resurrection, not his death, that we are said to be born to a living hope. What Calvin is saying is that Jesus' death made us right with God, but it's his resurrection that gives us the hope that we'll be right with God forever. He reconciled us to God, but it is the empty tomb that tells us we're reconciled to God for all of eternity. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. The resurrection ensures we can trust that. The women here had forgotten the words of Jesus. I cannot blame them. The drama of the events of Holy Week must have been a whirlwind. The trauma of watching their rabbi be crucified like a common criminal would have been grueling. The fear of not knowing if your own association with him is going to have consequences for you. And in all the drama and all of the fear and all the trauma, they forget about the words of Jesus. They forget about what Jesus said. And we can do that too, and we do. We get so spun up into tornadoes of anxiety and fear that those fits, if not dealt with, can drag us into depression and drag us into despair. They can cause us to act rashly. They can cause us to forget what God has told us. And we start to doubt Him. We have got to remember the words of God, the things that He has spoken to us. He is not silent. Thankfully and mercifully, we have a, a speaking God. He loves to speak to the ears of his people. And if we have ears to hear, we will trust his words. Because he's told us the truth. And the resurrection of his son proves that his words can be relied on. With that said, we, we don't stop there. We won't just say that the resurrection proves the spoken word of God is true. It also says something about the one who is resurrected. Uh, allow me to jump from Luke to John. John starts his gospel this way. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is John talking about? Who is this word? Who, who would be with God and be God? Well, if you keep reading, he tells us, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's speaking about Jesus. Right? Who else but the second person of the Trinity could be God and also be with God? Who else but the second person of the Trinity became flesh, dwelt among us, displayed his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father? It's Jesus. He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the final and absolute revelation from God. And what does he spend his ministry doing? 
telling his followers, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. And you could say that considering what was at stake, this is the most important prediction that Jesus made. He had other predictions. But it was the most crucial revelation that the absolute and final revelation revealed to humanity. That the Son of Man would suffer and die and resurrect for His people. And what we're learning from this text in Luke 24 is that it all came true. His resurrection proved His revelation. And that proved that He is the revelation of God. He is the Word. And so the resurrection not only proves that God's spoken words are true, it proves God's incarnate Word, Jesus, is the truth. His Son the word, uh, is the Word of God in the flesh. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Revelation 19, 13, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God, as He is returning. He is the truth. And the resurrection confirms it. And it's so important that we understand and believe that He is the truth and understand that the resurrection confirms it because as the truth, Jesus is transforming our lives. Jesus is delivering us from lies, from the lies of Satan. And then He is using His truth to sanctify us. He separates us from the grip of sin and the grip of Satan throughout our Christian walk. He changes our desires. Jesus said in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus, the word, sets his people free from sin. His truthfulness has won the day in our hearts, and he is minute by minute bringing us under the authority of his word. Minute by minute, he's taking every master that lays claim on your life, every master that says, I will enslave him, I will enslave her, and he says, no, you will not. Every master that tries to grab your heart, he is prying their cold, dead fingers off of it. Because that heart belongs to him now, it belongs to the word, it belongs to the truth And so He is changing us and He is taking us from looking like our our sinning, stumbling father Adam who failed in the garden to looking like Him, the truth. So why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. With that said... We can't stop there because saying Jesus is the truth is more than just saying that Jesus is right. It's more than just saying that his words are always true. It's more than just saying that God is a truth teller at heart. We are saying that. All of that is true. But when we recognize that Jesus is the truth, we're saying also that he is authoritative. Listen, Jesus, he, he did not come to be a good moral example He did not come to earth to be a spiritual guru or to be a benevolent teacher. He he showed up and he looked at a bunch of Jewish leaders and he said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. They said, are you greater than our father Abraham, the one who started the Jewish faith? I mean, come on, Jesus, who are you? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham even existed, 
I existed. It was me. I was there. He calls himself the Son of Man throughout his whole ministry. That's his favorite term for himself. Son of Man is a term that comes from Daniel 7. It's this divine figure in Daniel 7 who comes on the clouds to rule over the earth and judge the nations. And Jesus says, yeah, I think that's the title I want to use for myself the most. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sin, a power only ascribed to God. He referred to himself with seven I am statements. We've looked at some of them this morning. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the book of John, he has seven I am statements, all meant to let us know he is the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, and now he's in the flesh, that Jesus is the great I am incarnate in human skin. He performed miracles, casting out demons, calming storms, transgressing what we think we know of nature in order to show He's got the authority over nature and over the whole created realm, including the demons. And then if all that's not enough, He just outright said that He and the Father are one, and if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. These words and actions were claims to divine authority as the truth come down from heaven in human flesh. He said he was God. I remember hearing one of my professors at VCU, I only had like two sane professors in the religion department there that I, I would say, or, or uh, teachers that I would sit under, and um, they, they were good, just orthodox, you know, Christian professors. And uh, One of them, uh, Dr. South, I remember, had a debate with an imam and a rabbi. And it was at VCU, it was on a stage, and the imam and the rabbi were both pretty liberal. Uh, There were probably plenty of people in their own religions who would not lay claim to them uh, because they got up there and basically said, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, it's all the same. It's all the same. Same religion, same God. Dr. South said, oh, I'm fine with that. Yeah, we can totally say that as long as you guys are willing to admit that uh, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As long as you're willing to say that, totally good with us saying it's the same God. They're like, oh, no, 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 we can't say that. We can't say that. Because Jesus didn't just show up saying, I'm one of many prophets or I am one of many teachers or I am one of many making truth claims. He showed up and said, I'm God, I'm the truth, and anybody who opposes the things I'm telling you is a liar. They're wrong. And there is no way to get to heaven except through me. He was exclusive and he was clear. And because he walked out of the grave, we can believe all of it. That is what we're saying here. Because he walked out of the grave, we are confident that he backed up every single one of those claims for good. And that has bearing on my life each day. You say, well, well, does that really matter to you? Yes, it matters to me. This is the air that I breathe. It's the air we breathe as Christians. 
If I can trust Him on this, that He rose from the dead, and if I can trust Him on His claim to be the truth, and and His claim to be the truth that suffered for me, and that saved me, and that sanctifies me, then my belief in that resurrection, and my belief as Him as, as, as the truth, it empowers my faith to believe in Him to take care of everything else in my life. Believing in the empty grave makes my heart more ready to trust Him. My heart more prepared to believe in every bit of who He is, every bit of what He has said. The resurrection shows us that God doesn't lie, that Jesus doesn't lie. He does what He says He will do, and He has done it. If He has resurrected, can't we trust Him? What else does He need to do to prove Himself to us? And furthermore, it isn't just that I can trust Him, but I can be confident of who I'm trusting. This is the same death-defeating God who overcame the sin of the garden by walking out of the tomb outside of Jerusalem. If He has the authority to crush death, death, right? The enemy that no one can overcome. If He can crush death like that, can He handle my finances? Can't I give Him the lives and the health of my kids? Can't I give Him my job? Can't I give Him my own health? Can't I give Him the very days that I have? Of course. I want you to imagine for a second you're in a foreign country. You're you're very concerned for your danger. You went there on vacation. You were like, you know, just having a good old time. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a host of black SUVs pulled up, threw you into a car, whisked you away. Next thing you know, you're in prison. And somebody explains to you in broken English that they think you're a spy. And you're like... Uh, I was here for a cannoli and a latte. Like, I was here for some sightseeing. I'm not a spy. What is going on, right? You're getting scared. Now imagine two possible heroes show up to rescue you. One is me. I show up. I'm like, listen, Pastor Michael's here. Don't, don't worry. I think I know some people. I got it under control. We're going to get you out of here. You'd be like, what are you going to do? You don't have any power here. You have no authority here. What are you going to call a deacon? Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. Now imagine instead of me, you hear Air Force One land. And you see about 10 Secret Service enter the room. And then President Biden walks in and he says the exact same thing to you. Hey, don't worry. I'm here. I know some people. I'm going to talk to them and try to get you out. Now listen, I don't care if you think Joe Biden's a great president. Okay? If it does better for your mental exercise, put President Trump in there or whatever president you need to put in there. Put Washington in there for all I care. All right? When the President of the United States walks in that room and he says, I think I know some people and I can do something about this, you have a whole lot more confidence in him than you do in Pastor Michael. Right? Why? Because he's got the authority to do something about it. The God who stepped over death's crossed up, broken ankled body as he left the grave is the same God who reaches his authoritative hand out to you and says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Give me your kids. Give me your finances. Give me your life. He offers you rest from your worry as you trust in Him the truth, the absolute and final revelation from God, Jesus Christ, the glory we have beheld, the glory of the only Son sent by the Father. All right, let's wrap it up. The resurrection proves His words are true, proves Jesus is the truth, and finally, the resurrection provides eternal hope to our hearts. Look at the last few verses of the scene. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I don't know what went through Peter's mind when he went back. He may have been like, oh, didn't Jesus say something about maybe third day, rise again, let me go check. Or it may have just been like, maybe there's a chance something weird's happening, let's got to go see. Or maybe it was, if somebody messed with Jesus' body, I'm going to kill them. What, what I tried to do in the garden, I will try to do again. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going through Peter's mind. We just don't know. But we do get an idea of what's going through his mind and his heart afterwards. He stoops in, he looks, he sees the claws by themselves, and he knows something is extraordinary, something miraculous is taking place. He, he marvels. See, if grave robbers took the body, it would have been disheveled. It would have been a crime scene, right? Stuff would have been all over the place. There would have been no care taken because the robbers would have had no respect for the body of Jesus. But when he saw that everything was kind of like neatly set up, Peter realized this isn't a crime scene. This is the scene of a miracle. Again, I don't know that he gets it all. The word for marveling was used a lot of ways in Greek culture. The word that that translates here to marveling, it could mean amazed but doubting. It could mean amazed but believing. It could mean amazed but confused. The bottom line, though, is he goes home pondering these things in his heart, pondering the truth in his heart. And we should do the same thing as Peter today, but we have a finished Bible in our hands. So you don't need to marvel in doubt, and you don't need to marvel in confusion. You can marvel in faith. Peter had some important conversation with Jesus ahead that would clear up a lot of theological and personal issues for him. You and I have the pleasure of having the completed Word of God in our hands. I know that some of you might think, man, if I could sit with Jesus, and I could talk with Jesus over breakfast the way Peter did, that would be awesome. You can. Every single morning you can sit and talk with Jesus over breakfast in his word with the Bible open. We have the whole word of God. And we have the throne of God opened up to us for our prayers. And because of that, we can look to the resurrected Christ. We can know exactly what the empty grave means. We can marvel in faith at what the empty grave promises to us. In terms of eternal hope, the resurrection secures our future. It lets us know we will be raised like him. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Church, we believe Jesus is risen. Therefore, we believe those who are dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus returns, and then any who are alive will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, and then all of them as the people of God will live under his authority, and we will reign with Christ forever as his co-heirs. This is the living hope. 
you are born again to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The Christian heaven is not an ambiguous, you know, fingers crossed, pie in the sky fairy tale we tell ourselves and our kids to make ourselves feel better about how bad the world is. We get accused of that, but no, that's not what it is. It is the destination we are enduring for. It is not a fantasy, it is the reality we are anticipating. And by faith, we are as convinced that heaven will be ours as we are that Jesus walked out of a grave 2,000 years ago. Because we know we, that, that He is alive, and we know that by His life, we will be alive forevermore in Him. So let's marvel in faith over that in our hearts. And let our marveling lead us to worship the Lord who is our King. He is not here, He is risen. And because of this, we know that His words are true, we know His Son is true, and we know that our hope ends in reward. I'm going to invite the band to come right now. And to join us. And I was thinking this morning about my own salvation. I was thinking for some reason about the events that kind of led to it. And um, I was thinking about July 14th, 1999, the day that I came to know Jesus as my Savior. And I just started thinking about how his presence has been in my life ever since then. And there's been way too many days I've taken that for granted. And I'm sure that many of you feel the same way. But on that day, I didn't just gain a friend. I gained the God of the universe being in my life, me knowing him, being able to have a relationship with him. And I was just thinking this morning about how empty I would be if that wasn't in my life. If I didn't know these things, if I didn't know that Jesus is the truth, and if I didn't know that the words of this book are trustworthy because he came out of that grave, and if I didn't have a living hope, how empty I would be. And man, if that is you, if you're here this morning, and you're just like, I'm, 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 I'm empty. I'm empty. I'm without him. And I just want to say to you, today is the day of salvation. Be filled with Christ. Agree with him about your sin, that you were wrong in your sin. Turn from it and put your trust in this Jesus that we have talked about. You know you can trust him. The resurrection proves it. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He didn't live the, sin, the sinful life that you and I lived. He lived a sinless life. And then he went and he died on the cross for us. All of the punishment I should have gotten on that cross was poured out on him. I, I, I should have suffered for, for my sin for eternity. But he suffered as my substitute in my place at Calvary, as your substitute in your place at Calvary. And then he resurrected, as we've talked about this morning. He crushed death. And now he extends eternal life to you. Repent of your sin and put your trust in him. The band's going to play. We'll wrap up our service here in just a moment. But if you want to give your life to Christ, if you're like, I want to know the resurrected Savior, you're saying this is the, the thing that I, I need to believe that he is resurrected. Well, I believe it and I want to know him and I want to be a Christian. Email or, or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. 
or I'm going to be out there and I would love to talk to you. would love to talk to you about have, having a relationship with Jesus and starting fresh with God and knowing him and having his presence in your life for the rest of your life. There's nothing better. Let's pray. Father God, we give you the praise that you resurrected your son from the dead. Jesus, we give you the praise that you are the victor over death. And Holy Spirit, we give you the praise for opening our eyes up to the truth of it. I pray, Father, that if we have souls in this room that are, are teetering on surrender and giving it all up to know you, giving it all up, laying down everything that, every agenda, every, um, every selfish ambition, every desire for personal gain, to just lay it all down and say, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to make him glorious. I just want to make his name famous the rest of my life. I just want to live under his authority and trust in him. And Father, I pray that you would draw them into you and that they would know your love and they would know the love of your son and you would open their eyes up to who you are this morning, that we would gain brothers and we would gain sisters because of the preach word. We love you, Lord. Work in the hearts of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we respond to the resurrection.
my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders, in my place you suffered, bled, and died. Before we close in, in prayer and our benediction, I do have just a, a couple announcements this morning. And the first um, is that uh, the Christmas lights, we're going to be having a kind of a, a teardown day next Saturday at 9 o'clock, weather permitting. And so if you are able, we have a lot of Christmas lights out there, to, to be able to come next Saturday morning at 9 o'clock and be able to, to help to take those down, that would be much appreciated. That would be awesome. Also, um, I do want to let all of our, our women know that the Women's Ministry Prayer and Praise event um, is, is going to be canceled, but keep your eyes out for future events that are coming up in the Women's Ministry. I know that there's going to be a lot of things that are coming up, and if you're looking for something to do on that day that it was supposed to happen on the 12th, the WMU will be meeting that day at 1130, and they would love for you to join them as well. Also, as we're getting into the new year, choir is going to be starting back up at 7 o'clock tonight in the student center, and so if you are a part of the choir, make sure to join them right over there. Um, and then also, if you are a part of the senior ministry, the senior ministry Christmas party is going to be on the 19th at 1130, and so make sure to join them for that. Um, with all that said, uh, we are going to, to pray and pray for our offering as well. You can give right there in person at the Dropbox. You can give online at seafordbaptist.com slash giving, or you can even give on the Church Center app. But we are going to pray for our offering. We're going to close in prayer, and then we will finish with our benediction together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be able to, to come together, to gather for worship. God, we thank you for really just the way that you know, our, our series, our long series through Luke has worked out, that we're able right after, you know, just two weeks after celebrating Christmas and celebrating the birth of our Savior, that we are here worshiping and celebrating the resurrection. Um, and God, we pray that you help us, you know, as you know, we go from here. God, we pray that you help us to be your workmanship. 
God, we pray that you help us to take our walk with you seriously and that we are sharing the good news of Jesus with our friends and with our neighbors, with our community, that you are at work through the things that we are doing as a church, through all of our ministries and through Upward and and everything that we do, God, we pray that our hearts are full of worship for you and that that shows from the inside out. And God, we also lift up our offering to you this morning. God, we know that our giving goes to so many different ministries, not just right here in our community. Of course, it does, but that it goes out and supports church plants and different um, ministries all over. And God, we pray that you bless that and that you are at work through that. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we started last week, let's close our service with Romans 16.20. I'll read the first part, um, and then we'll all finish finish off that second half of the verse together. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning.